Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman, and this is my co-host with me here, David Ludlam. Today, we have Colorado Mesa University Associate Professor of Biology, Margot Bechtel, with us. Thank you for coming today. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, we want to talk to you about plants today, obviously. Um, But when we were talking before the show, I thought there was a certain irony that you didn't always love plants, first and foremost. Your first passion was actually what? You wanted to be a veterinarian, I think you said? Yes. Yeah, I wanted to be a veterinarian for a very long time. And I'll preface that by saying that I've always loved science, Um, knew that I wanted to go into something related to science. My grandfather was a doctor, a doctor here in town, actually, for um, many years. Um, And he always made it a point to um, sit down with me and, and read through medical journals. He would make me read out loud, so he'd make sure that my reading was up to par. And we chat about you know, medical things. And so there was always, and then I had another grandfather, great grandfather who was a veterinarian. And so there was kind of that, that love of science in our family already. And um, I don't know, I gravitated towards animals, I think, as a lot of, um, a lot of kids do. Um, And I was born in Grand Junction, but um, grew up mainly in Fort Collins, which is where the CSU Vet Teaching Hospital is located. And so I had the opportunity in high school to volunteer and then actually get a job there as part of my, you know, wanting to be a veterinarian and um, had a really great experience there. Um, Then came here for my undergraduate degree. And uh, my first uh, semester, my first summer of my freshman year, I signed up for a marine biology course um, offered by jointly by University of New Hampshire and Cornell University. And it was a field course. And so I went and lived on um, Appledore Island um, out in, I don't know, off the coast of of New Hampshire and um, took a three-week marine biology course there. And it was really interesting and I loved it. But then I like the thing that I loved the most actually of that course was learning about the kelp and the algae. And which kind of surprised me. And then I came back here <laughs> it wasn't for my the large mammals. It yeah, was the I mean, I thought it, you know those were interesting too. Um, then I came back here for my sophomore year, and um, took a botany class and um, fell in love with plants. And it was like that 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 class changed my life. I you know it it was what we call the botany from hell because it it at that time botany was taught. You started with the bacteria and you worked your way all the way up through the plants, even though bacteria are not part of the fun, the uh, plant kingdom. So learned a lot about a lot of different things. And that that professor of that class, um, Dr. Kelly, ended up being my um, advisor. And I, I just was like fascinated by the, the fact that plants just do so much, even though a lot of people think they just sit there. And during that class, also a question came up about something came up about plants getting sick, that plants can get sick. And I was like, wait, what? So plants get viral, viral, fungal, bacterial infections, just like we do. Um, and I thought, well, what in the heck? Like, can they possibly, they can't possibly do anything about it. So I went to my advisor and said, so what's the deal here? And he's like, well, guess what? There's this field called plant pathology. And that's what plant pathologists study is plant diseases and how plants deal with plant disease. And so that's where my path to becoming a plant pathologist actually um, came about. So you started off with a love of animals. Mm-hmm. You skipped over the bacteria. You fell in love with plants through kelp, <laughs> <laughs> which people can identify. It's the stuff you find on the beach. That yeah, just so they're marine. And... They're not plants, but they're like ancestors okay. of plants. Yeah. Okay. And then here you are today. That's that, I like that irony that you started off with that love for animals yeah. and the plants. and. And I should say, too, I had a hard time kind of deciding on what part of biology. So when I landed on plant pathology, it was partly because 
Um, there's so many things that go into plant pathology. There's insects, there's plants, there's microbes, and then you have to consider the environment too. So all those things have to be considered when you're studying a plant disease. And so, you know, there's obviously plant people. I think everybody here listening probably has somebody in their life that has a bunch of plants and they take care of them and, you know, they love these little green or purple or whatever they have. Um, And I know just for myself, I have plants all over my tiny little office. I think I have something like 10 plants and I'm always watering them and taking care of them. What does your office look like? Do you have plants kind of all over the place? I do. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a window office um, so I can stack it full of plants. So I, I, I counted them and I have 15 plants plus a terrarium. So, yeah, I, I like to surround myself with plants, and then I've got lots of pictures of plants. And there's just something really um, welcoming and soothing about having having plants um, in my office. And so, like, when students come in for things, they're always like, oh, it's so nice in here. And I do spend a considerable amount of time in my office, so I try to make it, you know, welcoming. <laughs> what is it? What is it about plants? I mean, you think about animals, and we anthropomorphize animals because they have two eyes, and they have ears, and they respond to us, and we can relate to them. But what? how do... What is it about plants that allows us to connect with them emotionally in that way that Kelsey and you just described? I think partly it's it's that plants also respond to us. Like if, if you're really kind of paying attention, you know, like, you know, you have the power to plant a seed and grow the plant and watch that plant grow in a pretty short period of time. And you, you have control over a lot. You have a lot of control over how well that plant actually does. And um, so I think it, you know, it kind of it, it's really common, I think, for people to kind of treat their plants as, um, you know, almost like pets in a way. Um, I have a cactus in my office. It's the cutest little thing. It looks fuzzy, but, you're, you know, it's cactus, so you don't want to touch it, but you want to touch it. It's fuzzy, and it always this time of year produces these the cutest little white flowers, and sometimes it will produce two little white flowers at the top that literally look like little eyes. Um, and it's just, it's just really, really cute. So plants can also be cute and can have things that kind of look like eyes, but... Um, also that, that ability to kind of, um, really watch something grow and to kind of have ownership over it, I think is, is interesting. And my students, um, in one of my classes in, in, uh, principles of plant biology, which is 100 level majors, um, plant biology, they grow plants, um, for the semester in the greenhouse part of their lab Um, assignment is to to grow a plant and so they pick out the seeds they grow the plant and most groups will end up naming their plant some sort of name like I have a kale in the greenhouse right now that's named Ophelius Um, so they you know they they will kind of relate to their plant they come and check on it they watch it grow when it's not doing well they're like what's wrong with my plant you know we try to figure out what's going on so I think um, yeah they're maybe not as furry and fuzzy although there are some plants that are very furry and fuzzy and are really soft in actually. the office we were laughing at kelsey the other day because we were on a, a teams or zoom call and she all of a sudden jumped out of her chair and like ran and we were wondering what she was doing and one of her plants was blowing in the wind and she was saving it like, and it would be just teasing her about being you know loving the plant and running before it rolled off the balcony and so yeah it's interesting that people have this affection for plants and you don't think of it that way but even when they maybe die or like you could grieve over a plant even yeah something. oh for sure yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it, you know, they can provide you with joy. They can provide you with food. Um, you know, there's a big push right now, or not big push, but just people are becoming more interested in growing plants as well. I think, you know, you talking about how, you know, you came to Colorado Macy University as an undergrad and fell in love with plants. And here you are X amount of years later, 
teaching students who are just like you, do you see that in your classroom, that aha moment of, oh, wow, I, I actually love plants. And I didn't know it until this moment. Absolutely. Um, I have some you know, students that come into the class already loving plants. I have some that come in. It's a required course um, for some of our students. And so they, you know, on my evaluations, sometimes I'll get the, the yeah, I took this course because it was required, but I actually really like plants now. Or surprisingly, I found plants much more interesting than I expected them to be. So that's always that's always a nice, you know, little boost at the end of the semester. Like, yes, I did, I did my job. <laughs> well, I really want to talk about some of your work and research. But before we do, I noticed uh, on your water bottle here that you have um, stickers of, what are they, mushrooms? There's, a, um, yeah, there's a variety of stickers on there, but there definitely are some mushrooms. Yes. So I, I assume that you have some sort of passion for mushrooms because there's what, three or four or five there. What what do you do with mushrooms? What is um, so uh, part of my passion comes from the fact that I teach mycology, which is fungal biology. So that's another course that I teach here on campus. And um also, as a plant pathologist, um, fungi are one of the groups of plants that, or sorry, one of the groups of microbes that infect or interact with plants. Um, they can infect or they can actually um, have a symbiotic relationship with, with plants. Um, and in fact, a lot of the mushrooms that we see, uh, mushrooms are also called fruiting bodies. And so a lot of these fruiting bodies that we see come up usually, you know, late summer, early fall are actually the, the fruiting bodies, the spore producing structures that are coming from fungi that are growing under the ground that have um, extensive networks of um, what we call mycorrhizae or um, hyphae is another word for them. But they, many of those mushrooms are associated with the roots of the the trees and the shrubs and the plants that are in the forest. And so um, I just, they're just a, a, fungi are just a kind of a really cool organism. Um, they're plant-like in a way because they have a, a growth habit that kind of is root-like. Um, and then they produce these fruiting bodies that are really, you know, beautiful and, and odd and weird and um, also can be food. They can also be deadly. There's there's a lot of really interesting things about um, mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I lived in Oregon for a while. Oh, and so, so the, jealous. You know, yes. The Pacific Northwest <laughs> thriving with all different types of mushrooms. You go for a hike um, anywhere, you know, and they're growing on the trees, on the ground, on old logs and um, it's really common there for what do they call it? Mushroom pickers? I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the actual what the what foragers. They call it. Foragers. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, do you have you been there? Do you find enjoyment doing that? What I I mostly so I don't do a lot of foraging. I prefer to catch and release. <laughs> so to find them, it's really fun to find them. Um, and you know, around here, some years are really good. Some years you really have to hunt for them um, because of the dryness. Yeah. yeah. Um, so finding them is cool. And then, you know, taking pictures. I love taking pictures of them, you know, down on my hands and knees with my phone upside down, trying to take pictures from, you know, the gills underneath and the very structures of, of fungi are really cool. And, um, I tell my students, you know, when you're hunting for mushrooms, when it's, when they're not just like popping out at you, I say like, take your time. Maybe you'll, you know, maybe you find that one. So go sit down and they're supposed to write, you know, descriptions and kind of take, um, stock of where they are um, for reporting back and trying to figure out what they're they're finding. I say, you sit there for 30 minutes and kind of take notes on that mushroom. I guarantee that others will start coming to you. Like you'll see there are others around. Some of them are tiny, like you wouldn't even notice unless you spend a few minutes just kind of getting into that mushroom mode and then you'll start to find them. So earlier you said that uh, fungi have a symbiotic relationship with trees and other, but sometimes it's pathologic, meaning bad. So mm -hmm. how do you, you know, you're, if you're hiking out and you see the, 
mushrooms growing on a pine tree mm-hmm. or out of a pine tree? Is that mm-hmm. symbiotic or is that pathological? And how do you know? So one way is to look at the tree. If the tree is dead or if it's obviously dying, That's a good sign. then That's, it's probably oh. a pathology. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like us, kind of yeah. like people. Yeah, okay. Yeah, if it's, if it's, but also if you have like a tree that's already dead, it may be that the tree died of something else and now the mushrooms are coming in to decompose because they're, they're you know, um, what am I trying to say? Primary is the right word, but they're a, a decomposer. They decompose a lot of stuff um, and they're one of the few things that can decompose um, wood. So um, when you see rotting logs, that decomposition is happening um, primarily because of fungi, various types of fungi. They don't always produce mushrooms, but... They're composting. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and we have a, a greenhouse here at Colorado Mesa University. Yes. I always walk by and I see it and I actually haven't been up there, but I've always been really fascinated about it. What is it there for our students, you know? In and out, I think you manage it. Is that right? Yes, yeah, I do. And I'd be happy to give you a tour anytime. Um, yeah, it's an educational research greenhouse, um, and it's full of a diversity of plants. Um, that greenhouse was built in 2011, um, so it's going on 11 years now, um, right? Yeah, if I do the math anyway. So um, we have um, like 50 different species of plants, I think. Oh, I wrote that down somewhere. Anyway, um, there we have a diversity of plants from any, everything from like little green mosses all the way up to um, what we consider to be more complex plants like the flowering plants. And um, I mentioned earlier that some of my plant biology students grow plants. And so the teaching lab um, where I teach that class is adjacent to the greenhouse. So they get access to the greenhouse. They get to grow um, plants throughout the semester. Uh, and then of the plants that are in that greenhouse, we pull in a variety of them for teaching um, that plant biology class, as well as my plant anatomy class and plant physiology and some other classes as well. And there's a little bit of space in there for um, research and some student projects. Um, and I also have students, um, I take on two students every semester um, to do independent study. They help me, they, they help with maintenance of the greenhouse. The plants have to be weeded, they have to be maintained, we have to scrub floors, all the things to keep the greenhouse plants healthy. So in relation to the greenhouse, you mentioned research. What kind of research are you working on? Yeah, so I have a few different, I have a couple different projects. Um, Currently, um, I have a long-running project that started in 2011 that's a continuation of my dissertation work. Um, I study the pathogen that caused the Irish potato famine. Um, So it obviously infects potatoes, uh, but there are other members of that family that it also infects. So tomatoes and petunias are also in that family. Um, so I actually study that pathogen on petunias. Um, and the reason I study on petunias is because they have the kind of an innate ability to fight that disease off, to fight that pathogen off. And so as a graduate student, I worked on trying to figure out kind of what, what was going on, what's that host pathogen relationship and how is that host, those petunia hosts, how are they able to fight off the pathogen compared to, um, a potato or a tomato and, and, Sorry. Go ahead. Um, why is it? Why is this interesting? You know, for people like us, you know, like we're uh, all of a sudden. I'm just thinking about you know in Ireland when this horrible thing happened. You know, you're just living your life and thriving, and then all of a sudden there's no food. You right. Know? And so, how is the work that you do maybe helping us in the future? Right. So this particular project, um, by understanding how petunias are able to fight off the pathogen, we can learn more about um, that interaction and also maybe apply some of what we're learning to the potato 
um, situation or tomato situation. Um, and um, it, it turns out that petunias are covered with these sticky substances called sucrose esters. They're sugars. Um, and those sugars are able to explode one of the spore types of the pathogen. And um, potatoes and tomatoes also can produce these sugary substances. It turns out that a lot of our garden variety potatoes and tomatoes don't produce as many of those sh sugary substances. And so they maybe can't fight off the pathogen as it's first starting to get into the plant. Um, and then there's other things that go on inside of the plant as well once the pathogen gets in. But it, it, it just helps us um, add to the puzzle of understanding that, that host pathogen interaction. You know you're having an interesting conversation when you're talking about petunias as being like warriors and fighting <laughs> and being, going into battle. And yes. I mean, you never think of petunias as doing that, but that's really fascinating that they're kind of the saviors of potatoes. So that's yeah, I wouldn't quite go that far. I mean, um, <laughs> but yeah, they are, they are part of the puzzle because they are, um, they're part of that family. Tobacco is also in that family, and it also makes a, a ton of those sugary substances okay. on its surface. And pathogen being disease right um do we have that disease in this area is do, do you are you know people at home planting these gardens and finding that that particular disease um also known as late blight isn't super common in colorado because of our dry conditions so we're lucky that way um now the main potato producing area of colorado is the san luis valley and um on a wet year they might encounter some late blight um, but there are other other pathogens, I think that they're more likely to encounter. The most likely place you would find this pathogen today is like um, the Northeast, Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of potato production actually in the Northeast. Um, I did my graduate work at Cornell University in, in upstate New York, and um, it's, Cornell's the at state ag school for um, the state of New York. Um, so a lot of ag research goes on there, and there's a lot of um, potato late blight in that in that area, and you know, you, you were talking earlier about how is this important to us. Um, late blight is still a pretty major pathogen, pretty major disease around the world and still costs farmers a lot of money, um, potatoes and tomatoes. Um, it can devastate a crop. So this is how kind of a quick rundown. So spores get into a field. Let's use potatoes as an example. A few spores get into a field. That one potato, um, you know, will become infected, will produce another round of spores in, you know, under right the right conditions about, seven days um, and even if you have a little like two centimeter square area that one spore will turn into 20,000 spores and then that can spread throughout the field and you can take down an entire field in, in less than two weeks yeah can you imagine not going to the store not having tomatoes or well yeah I actually wanted to ask about that I mean we think about the Irish famine as being something in history and and right now we're living in history with the COVID-19 and there were researchers that have been warning us for decades that this was inevitable. Are there people in your field that see it the same way as that? Could we have another food crisis because of a pathogen like the ones that you're studying? And could we have something affect the breadbasket or the Midwest that could be as dramatic as the potato famine? Yeah, I think that's always a possibility. Um, the good news is that there are constant, you know, there are lots of plant pathologists and plant breeders out there um, studying all these disease on a constant basis and trying to figure out the best way to, you know, the best way to um, prevent these diseases is to prevent them. You, you can't cure a plant once it's, once it's sick, typically, so you need to prevent the infection from even getting there or even getting to your plant. One of those, you know, one of the strategies is to develop um, plant lines that have natural resistance, that have resistance genes inside of them that, that can fight off those, those pathogens. So there's, 
you know, plant pathology is very tightly linked to um, food safety and food production. And there are a whole, whole, whole host of um, pathogens out there that, that can cause problems. Um, yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> without going too far okay. and like too far <laughs> down a rabbit hole. Yeah. And so here at Colorado Mesa University, we're, you know, one of the few um, body farms um, it, it's the Forensic Investigation Research Station. And mm-hmm. I know it, this is kind of crazy because you wouldn't typically think that a plant pathologist would somehow be working with this body farm, but yet you are. Is that correct? Yeah. So the other project that I have going on that uh, started in 2017, um, I call it my flesh-eating fungi project. Um, <laughs> it, uh, so this one came about um, because I had some students in my mycology class in 2017 who were also um, doing an internship out at FERS. And Dr. Melissa Connor out there, the director of FERS, um, had shown them that there are some um, some cadavers out there that have been out there um, for several years. And at that point, they'd been out for, I think, close to five years. So they were they were purposely left out to kind of watch the, de- the decomposition process of, of bodies in this high desert environment, which is a unique environment for studying um, human decomposition. And so they noticed that as the bodies aged and became more mum- mummified, that the skin, which becomes very leathery under these conditions, had this kind of black crust on it. And um, Dr. Connor wondered if it was some sort of black mold. And um, so my students asked me that, and I said, well, um, bring in some samples and let's see what we can find. So um, they took just, you know, little samples off of the uh, the skin um, and actually some bone as well. And um, we saw some things grow. We saw some interesting or, you know, some sort of mold. Um, it wasn't just one mold. So that kind of started the process. And then that project kind of stayed on the back burner until 2019 when I took sabbatical and I had a little more time to kind of work on things. And I was able to kind of look into it a little bit more. Wouldn't you say that that is likely world-class research or at least research that isn't happening anywhere else on the planet, given that there's just not many well, body farms, so to speak, and, and, and then studying something that that narrow within that context is not a really unique opportunity for you and your students it is it is yes and so um it's been really interesting to kind of see what we're finding um last year um i had a student uh, brought on a student to um, work on this project more after i had a little bit more time on my sabbatical to really look at these fungi and take some more samples and what i found was i was consistently finding three fungi that were growing on the skin or the bones of these these specimens um which was surprising to me. I honestly thought I would find just so much. I thought it's in the environment, you know, and there's got to be just a ton of stuff out there. But it's consistently three. I was able to kind of narrow down based on the spore structure and shape and kind of the look of the colonies growing in a, in a Petri dish, um, kind of what I thought they might be. But to really figure out what you have, you, it's better to do a DNA analysis and do some sequencing. So I brought on a student who was able to do that. And we worked with Dr. Zainab Asoy in our department as well and did some sequencing. And we've got it pretty well narrowed down. Is there a practical application potentially for that as it pertains to law enforcement or some down the road? Could it help identify cause of death or anything like that that you can see right now? Um, it's a little out of my wheelhouse, but I would say, you know, it. When a body is at that stage, if, you know, Dr. Connor starts noticing this stuff come on about two years after, you know, once a, a body okay. has been out for two years. So at that point, it's a little, a little late, late, but it does inform us on like, you know, if you see that stage and we haven't looked at any other, any, any other places to see if we see the same fungi, but um, 
it would it might be able to tell you how long a body's been out um but i don't think that it would have anything to do with cause of death or anything like that that i know of yeah and how interesting you know this whole cross disciplinary thing happening here you know it's like you're a plant person dr connor's is you know working with this incredible research with decomposition bodies and yet you guys are finding like this common ground where you can learn from each other but also um help students kind of grow in this research yeah it's great it's been a fun project yeah i definitely never expected as a plant pathologist to be um working on fungi that are growing on dead bodies (laughs) do you think there needs to be more interdisciplinary work done to create and foster more love and appreciation between people and plants just culturally or in academia would that help um i think there's quite a bit of that already um, I don't know. I don't have a really good answer. I mean, I think the short answer is yes. Anytime you have interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary interactions, you everybody gains more from yeah. those interactions, right? Because you, everybody sees things from a slightly different perspective. Um, but I think um, I, I think one thing that that we're see, seeing happening right now is kind of a natural cross-disciplinary um, situation where people are stuck at home and. Um, Realizing that maybe there's something more to like this food production thing and where does our food come from and so many people wanting to grow gardens and I actually just heard a story this morning on NPR about there's a seed shortage so many people are growing gardens that there are certain seeds that are now already out of stock for this coming year um, because of this kind of renewed interest in growing your own food. Um, which I think is is great. So I think um, one of the silver linings of this pandemic is is people kind of getting back in touch with with you know understanding where things come from and um, you know who is an essential worker and who what is essential to us and what makes our daily lives better and just functional. So I, I think it's great. Yeah, I know. I'm one of those people. You know, I'm not. I I like my plants and I grow my plants gardens and really failing at all the time but you know I recently got chickens and yeah. so you know kind of coming home and saying okay what can I do here in my own backyard um yeah it's really fun and to go kind of full circle you know I know that we said you did your undergrad here at Colorado Mesa mm-hmm. and then you went to Cornell got your PhD and then eventually made your way back here what, what what is that like that transition and how is it how's it been for you to be back here um it's been great I've been here um, almost 16 years now um, and as a graduate student, you know, um, as I was going through my graduate studies, they're constantly asking, what's your next step? What do you think you're going to do next? And um, I wasn't exactly sure, but I always had teaching kind of in my back pocket as something that I might want to do. Um, and I'd actually planned to do a postdoc first in Oregon um, after my graduate work, but that kind of fell through because it took me a lot longer to write my dissertation than I expected. So that was kind of a disappointment. I was, you know, top on, on like a top three list of, of um, potential postdocs to go and work um, at universe or uh, Oregon State. And um, anyway, that fell through, and um, I got back in touch with some uh, professors that were still here when I was finishing up graduate work and just said, hey, you know, I'm kind of in limbo right now. Do you need any anybody to come and teach? And um, so when I started on, I was I was uh, I was a lecturer. I was like an adjunct and just taught part time. Um, And 
Uh, I always enjoyed the opportunities I had as a student to kind of teach my fellow students or, you know, sometimes in a class you'd be said, okay, here's your assignment. You're going to teach the class this thing. And even though it's a little bit nerve wracking to get up in front of people, I always found it interesting to be like, hey, look how this works. Let me show you how this works. Do you get it? And when they're like, oh yeah, I get it. That's really cool. So Mm -hmm. there's that kind of like love of turning that spark on and people are that, you know, seeing that aha moment in, in students. And so coming back to teach at a small school was definitely on my list and I was lucky enough to come back here. And you stayed 16 years. Yes. <laughs> well, I know I've learned a lot about plants today. I know you have a busy schedule and have a, a meeting to get to, but I want to put you on the spot with one last question before okay. we wrap up. Okay. What is your favorite plant if you have to pick one mm. and why? Oh, good question. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to have to go with um, petunias. Um, mm-hmm. so mainly not just because I study them, but also because I study them. Um, <laughs> I always thought of petunias as, you know, like they're just like your average garden flower. Right. But, um, when I was in graduate school, one of my professors, I, I have horticulture as a minor. And one of my horticulture professors called petunias 50 mile an hour flowers, because if you're going 50 miles an hour down the road, you still see them because they're vibrant. They're beautiful. You can plant them in mass and they're just really eye catching. I love that. Yeah. 50 um, mile an hour flower. 50 mile an hour flower. Um, I always have petunias in my yard. They are really cold tolerant, rain tolerant, drought tolerant. They're really a nice all around plant. Plus they're resistant to late blight. So I'm going to go with petunias. And I think petunias like um, they're, you know, some plants have symbolism with them and petunias um, are a symbol of friendship. So there you go. I love that you answered it, too. You could have easily said, I'm not going to pick one. I like all yeah. plants. That was a great answer. Yeah. I love that. Thank That's you. a good way to wrap it up, don't you think? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Margo, or Dr. B, as your students call you. Um, you're listening to See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman with my co-host, David Ludlam. And today we spoke with Colorado Mesa University Associate Professor of Biology, Margo Bechtel. Thank you so much. Thank you so much thank for you. having me. It was a lot of fun.